So everybody, welcome to Theology 201. Uh, congratulations on graduating and being ready to attend this session. Um, we may manage even to get microphones on. David knows my weakness on this front. Well, if they work, um, just come on. Yep, it's on. Okay. Yes. Believe it or not, I've actually checked that, and it is all systems go. Do you, do you want to come forward a bit? Because we're speaking Theology 201 to be rather an elite group. So I turn that one on as well. So, so, so welcome to the straight away and I'll do something yeah. in yeah. Um, so that can sometimes leave us at a, this sticky situation where there are these texts hovering in the Bible what are we going to do with those now like they're still there and uh, a theologian I really appreciate, I'll talk a bit more about later on is uh, Elsa Tamez um, who's a Latin American theologian woman, really powerful voice and says, like, sometimes progressive theologians, they leave us with these unredeemable texts, wow. and yet, at the base, that's the, the language of Latin Americans often, like, people who are actually in the thick of it, right? Uh, we're still working with a hierarchy that quotes these texts at us. Do something to help us. So, what I think the response that I want to make to that is, okay, we're still bringing our perspective, but now we're going to queer the text of terror. Now we, we're going to deconstruct that text of terror. 
And so the, the text that I want to look at today is not one of the classic gay texts, but rather it's Ephesians 5. Um, and this is a little bit bigger, but I'll focus in on verses 22 through to 33 at the moment. If I was going to get printouts, I'm not exactly sure what happened. If you want to, they, they didn't phone, get printed. I'm sorry. They were they were not printed. If you want to read on your phone, feel free to read on your phone. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to do that. I, I've got mine here. So that just again, I'm going to read Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Um, and what I'm going to do as well is actually give us a moment of uh, just meditation and finding a sense of safety before this, because this is a text of terror. This is uh, about women submitting, um, is, what, is what the text is about. So I just want to acknowledge the fact that can be very triggering for some people, especially if you may have been in a controlling relationship. Um, this, this isn't a text that we should make light of or make fun of. Um, there's, there's a history of violence that this text is embedded in, and that's always going to be the history. Uh, we can't go back and take that away now that it's been done. Um, so I'm just going to take a moment of silence and feel free to take some deep breaths, whatever it is that gives you a sense of safety, and then I'm going to read. Starting at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, wives ought to love, sorry, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So it's, it's there in our Bibles. Um, it's, that's, what, that's where it is. What... What I want to do to engage with this is take you through a story. Um, and I noticed that so far for every decade of my life, I've come across a new interpretation of this. <laughs> wow. um, and it's evolved in the readings. And I just want to give this, you know, it's, um, I, I might not stop regularly for questions, but if people have questions, you can, you can, you know, put up your hand or something and, and we can stop and do that. I'll keep a watch. Keep a watch. <laughs> and there's, I'll move through a number of different ways of reading this text. Um, and then we'll have some time to think about for ourselves, how are we going to read this text? What would it look like to queer this text? 
Um, so I grew up in the 1980s in the Pentecostal tradition. Uh, Pentecostal churches looked very different back back then. The Amen. mega church was less of a thing. We were a holiness movement. And the interesting thing about my... You, know, you never notice when you're growing up how you're different than other people. We used to have very powerful women leading from the front, pastoring churches, acknowledged as leaders. They were uh, defenders of traditional femininity. Um, traditional femininity in the sense of uh, dressed to the ankles, preaching every week, dressed to the ankles, no makeup because God didn't create us with makeup, oh, no. long hair because scripture says it's her crown and glory. These powerful women, as a little kid, it never occurred to me that traditional gender roles were disempowering because these women were powerful and also preach submit to your husbands literally. They might have been the pastor at church <laughs> and their husband will submit to them there and then they go home and it swaps. <laughs> and that was just literal and simple and there was no reason to question it. And the women were proud of that. Um, in the 90s, I become a teenager, I go to a Bible study at a local church and it's led by, by a woman who came out of the Jesus movement, who'd been a hippie, um, who was converted in the 70s. Uh, so very, very free thinking. And she read this differently. She had a feminist lens on how to read this passage of scripture. Um, now, I started reading at verse 22, because in my Bible and in many Bibles, that's where we're given a little heading, wives and husbands. Right, um, which you know we, we never knew in the fundamentalist tradition I came from that those are put in by the editor of the Bible. Paul didn't put headings in. My, my Bible study teacher went one verse backwards and said, "Submit to one another out of reverend reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord." And reinterpreted this whole thing by saying um, Roman patriarchy had one-way submission from the emperor. I mean, we saw that in the message this morning, if you were there, that little, little diagram where there's the emperor at the top. Everyone submits from the bottom all the way up to the top. And then Paul says here, wives submit to your husbands. Submit to one another. So this submission that's happening in Roman families, we're going to make this both ways. And then Paul flips it by saying, instead of what a Roman would expect, which is wives submit to your husbands and husbands rule them effectively, Paul then says love and that becomes mutual submission. So that was a different interpretation. Um, she then kept on reading into the next chapter where, this is where it gets interesting. I'm going to um, skip to verse 5 of the next chapter. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, because you know the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. 
So here's another situation. In this whole chapter and a half, Paul's saying there's mutual submission. We're going to look at the household and say wives are required by law to submit to their husbands. But in Christian households, husbands aren't going to exploit that. They're going to respond with love. There will be slaves. Most of the early Christian movement were slaves. If they try to escape, they'll be executed. What's the pastoral advice that you get? Think of this as service to God. You're not doing it for them. You can't get out of it at the moment, but, but think of this as being a kind of service that you're offered to the Lord, and actually we're going to all be rewarded by Christ with a slave or free. So now there's a different interpretation, right? There's, um, this text doesn't apply to us because we're in a different situation. Rather, this is a strategy that Paul was offering specifically to the Ephesian church. So that's reading number two. <laughs> reading number three, two thousands, I go to Bible college. One of my lecturers, radical feminist nun, uh, Margaret Tomlinson, one of the most uh, powerful teachers in a class that I've ever come across, like really, really quite, quite passionate. She was drawing on the interpretation of Ephesians that comes from a feminist theologian Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza. Um, this is going back 70s through the 90s, maybe the world's leading feminist theologian. Um, came from Germany, as you might know by her name. Wrote volumes on, on feminist interpretations of scripture. This interpretation that I encounter in the 2000s is, Ephesians is a forgery. Paul did not write this letter. The historical Paul believed in equality. In Galatians, he said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, neither male and female, but all are one in Christ, and wanted to completely subvert the patriarchy. Then, one of his disciples, after his death, tried to find a way to blend Christian equality with Roman patriarchal culture and came up with these letters so the forgery and this is actually Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza talks a lot about Ephesians promoting a kind of love patriarchy and she says if this was an attempt to soften the patriarchy in the Roman Empire then historically we have to say it failed because the patriarchy was not softened by it <laughs> think about history. It, it didn't. The patriarchy continued just as strong as it was and this simply became... So whether it was an attempt to do what my scripture teacher had taught me and soften or not, it didn't really work. Love patriarchy just became Christian patriarchy and we're living in it strong as ever, 2023. <laughs> um, this reading also... In the 2000s, the first volume of the Queer Bible Commentary was written. Um, and this text is very similar to some of the instructions about households in Colossians. So one of the authors of the Queer Bible Commentary, um, Thomas Bahachi, in, in the Colossians chapter said, Colossians and Ephesians are texts that have nothing to offer queer people. So the queer reading is to jettison these texts from the queer canon. <laughs> Um, 
Which is where I come up with the problem that Elsa Tamez responds. And actually, so Elsa Tamez, in a, a book, uh, theologians love to do this, after someone's career has kind of reached its heights, you write a collection of essays in their honour. Um, and so this book is called Towards a New Heaven and a New Earth, Essays in Honour of Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza. And Elsa Tamez is an expert on the pastoral epistles, um, which have a lot of similar texts of terror about women in them. Um, Elsa Tamez, uh, well, she talks about in, uh, I'm assuming it's Spanish, not Portuguese, but it may be Portuguese, insalvables, um, unredeemable texts, and says we have uh, leaders in churches who are saying, you know, you know, Jesus in the synagogue at Nazareth proclaiming freedom, that's a, that's a liberating text. You know, Moses leaves the slaves out of Egypt. Miriam leads them. These are empowering texts. And then we have the insalvables texts. We have Colossians, Ephesians, and the pastoral epistles, which, you know, we want to jettison them. And Elsa Tamez says, well, women at the base in Latin American countries, that doesn't help us. Because our hierarchies are quoting these scriptures to us and they are determining the rulings that happen in our churches about what we can and can't do. So we need you to help us with these texts. Um, So that that brings us to the mid-2000s. And I thought every time I kind of run out of energy, I'll do a wave of questions. (laughs) Because that was 30 years of my life, right? I went from... (laughs) Barbara Taylor revivalist woman hardcore old school uh, preached to a congregation mainly indigenous people which was very unique in Australia Um, long hair shocking red hair preached loud and preached traditional womanhood (laughs) and the reason that that she was in that powerful position is because she was a widow so she'd submitted to her husband and after she became a widow she became a pastor (laughs) From there to Thomas Bahachi, are we? What will jettison? Let's just rip it out. <laughs> Someone bring me a, I don't know, a pair of gardening shears. We'll, we'll rip this thing apart. That's a big journey. Do people have questions or even comments about how this is landing with you at the moment? Um, or if you just want to, like, say you really hate Paul, you can say that as well. It's safe space. Question? Do you think ripping scripture out of the book is is like a is, is a possible option? Like, is it on the table, or is it or is it kind of out of the question? And we need to like kind of delve in deeper and be more curious. Well, in a sense, that's the question I'm trying to force everyone here to answer. Um, so I'll yeah, I won't play my cards straight away. Okay. <laughs> But I, I really want you to be thinking about that because, you know, it's something a lot of people are, are discussing. Um, you will still have to prioritise texts, won't you? Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what approach you take, you'll have to say which is the key voice or the dominant voice and then interpret others against that voice. Yeah, well, you know, I think if we're Christians then we have to kind of prioritise Jesus somehow. I mean, different theological traditions are going to... Me first, then God. Uh, Okay, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I find that particular scripture 
always sort of, oh, yeah. really, do we get, oh, we're doing that today. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw you struggling with it when I was reading it. You're making like, it. Point's pretty clear, though. Mm. Yeah, you know those scriptures well. And I figure there must be, um, as you say, a way of actually getting, dealing with it and sort of the different perspective, which I've always been curious to. I don't think I've come across one. <laughs> and linkages between the chapters, between the books. Yeah, th- those connections are good. I mean, that's yeah. my, my scripture teacher when I was a teenager yeah. did some incredible work you know, with a group of young people in the early 90s just showing us, hey, you know, th- take away these chapter headings. And everyone was like, yeah, wives submit to your husbands. Oh, slaves submit to your masters. That is in context. But what? <laughs> that part's in context. Well, you go back 200 years and that wasn't in context. That was, yeah. I had, um, back in the 80s or 90s, I had a whole pile of cassettes. It was it was all on, a, yeah, Bible teacher. It was a sort of a theology thing. And one particular, particular one on Romans, was a study on Romans. Mm. Um, But anyway, this this study had um, a whole cassette on wives submitting to husbands and another cassette on husbands um, loving their wives and the husband's role. And I had um, the the pastor's wife at the time um, who uh, was was Pentecostal and she asked to borrow the teaching on wives submitting to husbands, which I never got back. Um, and didn't want the other one. Yeah. It's like it's always that focus on the wives, no yeah. focus on, on, on the husband. Yeah. But there has been quite a degree also of radical reinterpretation, especially I think it's Mennonites who you know transformed notions of authority and proposed that we had to undermine authority in general. And I think that fed into quite a lot of those yeah. Revised interpretations. Yeah. Who determines a liberal or conservative view in the Bible? Um, well, that's a good question because you know people will, different people will call different things conservative and liberal. No, There's no that's, agreement. That's wrong. Liberal, liberal. Okay. <laughs> I can say. Yeah. I like the free share here. Yeah. I don't know, I could say Peter Wolf. What's the to say? I don't know. So. Like Jesus says in Matthew, I think it's 19, when he is rebutting against the Pharisees, he, he quotes Genesis, the aphorism about being uh, men and women coming together. Um, and then he rebuts them to say that the reason why they got like the ability to divorce was because they are heart to a heart. Yes. And the, the word in the aphorism is about cleaving to one another, about becoming one flesh. Yeah. And like, that doesn't seem to be the priority, but everyone focuses on the man and woman. Yeah. And then they kind of leave out the, the other word. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that scripture comes up for me so often when I'm talking to people and Jesus actually says God gave you this scripture because you had hard hearts. Like, there was a better thing God could have said, but you weren't ready for it. So you got this. Like, <laughs> which 
says to me that there has to be some kind of prioritising which scriptures are going to be central to our interpretation of others. Like, do we say, okay, well, Jesus said this stuff about equality, but we're going to interpret that in the light of what Paul said in Ephesians about submission. Or do we say, well, this stuff about submission, we have to interpret this in the light of the teaching of Jesus. <laughs> and like, it seems to me that just Christian faith, if, we, if, we, if we're saying, using the word Christian, then we have to prioritise Jesus in that equation, in the way that we weigh things up. Uh, uh, could you give us the gospel text on the subject, please, that you're discussing? The gospel text where Jesus says the hardness of your hearts. Yeah, I, Matthew 19 sounds right. Yeah, could be said. Yeah. Thank you. Well, okay, so let me now propose a queer reading that I came across of these texts. Um, around the same time, actually, as the first volume of Queer Bible Commentary was coming out, I went and studied for a while in Berkeley, California. I got to study under <coughs> Virginia Ramey Mollencott, mm-hmm. who was, like, to me, is one of my favorite historical feminist and queer theologians. Um, And she does an interesting reading of this text, and I'm really fascinated to hear all of your hot takes to this, because I've been thinking (laughs) about this for 20 years since I heard it. Um, (laughs) She said, you can read this text and apply it to a whole bunch of things, but one thing you have to notice is that Paul says Jesus' head is male, and his body is female. Oh. And so Jesus, therefore, is omnigendered. Um, this is, I mean, this picture, whatever we're doing with it, is a picture of a Christ who is simultaneously male and female. The, the church is Christ's body, and Jesus is the head of the church, what male and female together in one. If you're born male, you're male here. You're male. The body doesn't make you male. It's the head that makes you male. Okay. Well, I mean, but that's not what what got written here. You know, we have this picture that is, it's not, that's not how we typically work, right? But we've been given this picture of Christ who is, who is omnigender. And Virginia Ramey Mollicott actually draws a whole theology out of this. She says if Christ is omnigender, then that means that that everything about gender that we know is part of divinity. Right. So this, to me, this is really interesting because it, it accepts all of the critiques. Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza, it's a violent text, it didn't work, everything stayed patriarchal, but actually we can say something powerful about ourselves from it. Um, and I'm, I'm really fascinated to hear how different people here respond to that. Um, if you think it works. I just think male and head. Where did it come from again? So this is Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Um, and it says, for instance, you know, um, uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Um, and uh, in the same way, husbands also ought to love their wives as their bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
No one ever hated his own body. Just as Christ cared for the church, we care for our bodies. Um, so it's this head, body, husband, wife, Christ, church parallel, um, all of which have male and female within them, and all of which are both human and divine. The kind of code you as well. I'm like, there are so many problems with that. And yet, I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think... You say you're all brave, you're all brave hard. There's also an element of hierarchy, you know, as well as the other kind of thinking. Yeah. 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 But you can still, in the brain, you can still have emotion. Your body doesn't show the emotion. So, or logic with the brain. So to try and drag queen it up for a moment. <laughs> but why, why are we sort of binary in this interpretation, even though like we're, we're dealing with a, a very binary statement? Yeah. If we actually, if you take it through the, the whole head-body concept and actually continue it through the fact that whatever is being modelled is talking about the fluidity potentially of... Yeah the church or the body of Christ, what, where does that leave us with um, yeah, dressing, dressing it up? Yeah, I'm, I don't know how you would dress it up. I, I, honestly, I do have this picture of like, <laughs> like a Jesus head, like with the long hair and the beard and then like a bridal dress. <laughs> yeah. There was a show in the 80s uh -huh. with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Bad guy was a brain in a jar that would talk to a speaker. Crane? Crane was a brain in a jar. Yeah. And okay. Alive and it's very <laughs> And it's an interesting picture as well because you know there's problems with associating woman and body because now there's there's an object element to that. But here's the other thing as well: the idea of maleness as disembodied intellect. Um, oh yeah is a thing as well. Like, you know, I think um, there's an argument that traditional masculinity cuts us off from our bodies and our emotions. Um, and so that's, yeah, that element's here in the text as well. I, I would still see that as the, the head, the male part, being the ruling yeah. of the body. Yeah. Um, and if that's Christ, yeah. I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. But if it's just male... Yeah. No. Yeah. I wonder whether there might be alternative strategies around the one flesh idea. Um, because, yeah. I mean, it would seem later in, the, in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So mm. if the one body binds Christ and the church together yeah. in one flesh, yes. then... I mean, it's difficult to think of a hierarchy in the relationship of Christ and the church. Yeah. Yeah. So, like a pre 
Trinitarian and trying to understand what is God like before they've kind of figured out the work of the Spirit and and, and this image of us being one yet being different is probably way ahead of them and they're just going, I don't know what this guy's talking about. This is too difficult. Reading reading the Trinity back onto that text would be another way to try and Mm -hmm. break it from binary to Mm -hmm. omni. Yeah. I think for me one of the the things with an interpretation like that is like I've come from an evangelical tradition in terms of how I've been taught to read the Bible and you've got to get to a place where actually there isn't one meaning in a text to be able to even mm. engage with this kind of discussion. Mm. Um, well, but can I can I ask though if you do want one meaning from the text it's pretty clear that in this one original meaning of Paul's intention he had no problem calling Christ a bride oh, you his body a bride like yeah. there's just I, I think this is um, oh, Ramey Mollencott's whole point is Paul's just very flexible mm. with his understanding of Christ's gender mm. and, the, and you know we Sometimes we're a bit rigid with this when we when we say in our own theology, okay, we'll say God, them, but then Father and Son will use he language in the Trinity. Um, and then maybe other texts we can use feminine language of God. But Father, Son, we've got to stick with he. We're going to be very rigid. Paul just doesn't seem to care about that at this point. <laughs> and so to me, this reading, like, it, it's surprising. It's not Paul's main point in this. But I think it does draw on things that Paul actually said. Like, it's not, it's not twisting the meaning of the text, as far as I can tell. We can't hear when you put your head down. Oh, sorry, yeah. the church is subject to Christ, and we're yeah. really subject to Christ, and in the same way, women are supposed to be subject to their husband. So you can't yeah. get away from that, even if you've got mm. this omnipotent. So, not saying that that's the correct interpretation, but if you're if you're coming from, you know, if you are especially patriarchy, yeah. and telling wives, well, look at this. This is the text. Yeah. Um, well, that would still be. Person, God, spouse. Yeah. So I think what going to my 1990s interpretation, what my scripture teacher taught us, um, I, she was big into every word in these texts. The word submit is hupotasso. There's a whole literature now, like books are written on hupotasso. What exactly is submit? And in the context of a head, there's a debate about whether headship should mean source. control or source. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. source. And yeah. Sorry, that whole. Yeah. So that the source of a river is where the water comes from. Mm-hmm. The river submits hupotasso by letting the water flow through. So that in this subversion, if you want to go with a, like my scripture teacher feminism plus the um, Raymond Mollencott query, then 
women in Rome were supposed to submit to control. Paul's saying, submit to headship, which means nurturing and providing, and that nurturing and providing has to be love. Um, And then let's make that um, part of the body of Christ as the bride of Christ, that there's a spiritual element in this as well. Um, Yeah. So, well, I think in the river analogy, the head is seen as kind of nourishing the body by organizing, the, and it's that same um, it's that same thing that there's there's this headship of of providing and nurturing. I yeah, when I when I was married, and yes. this was you know sort of the discussion thing about. Husband and wives and wives submitting. Um, what I came to was if my husband did his role the way it's put there about loving and caring and, and, and doing everything that he's supposed to do, mm-hmm. submission wouldn't be an issue. Yeah. Um, and so it was, um, although you're not supposed to say, well, I won't unless. But it was that aspect of, well, if you did your part, I'll do my part, and submission won't be an issue. Yeah. Because it's done in love, and you'll be doing everything with my best interests, and, and we'll be, you know, it, it's partnership. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just hope that actually works in practice. <laughs> because what I'm aware of is the fact that, well, in the 90s, when I'm learning this from my scripture teacher, I'm like, that solves everything. Um, and then I grew up and I started reading the news. Yep. And people say all those words yep. and control and dominate their wives with those words. Yep. Is, that's the problem with that reading, I think. Yeah, it is. Okay, I'm going to now come to the 2010s. Um, second volume of the Queer Bible Commentary. I think a lot of the work that we did in rebooting the commentary happened because Black Lives Matters happened. Um, Black Lives Matters. Rick Floyd. Yeah, yeah, George George Floyd, George and Floyd. Um, it brought up a lot of issues about queerness, um, and people started writing a lot of stuff around these texts. And one of the issues that we came across was the Ephesians commentary in the first volume talked about submission in gender as an issue, and didn't mention. The slave text. And queer folk of colour were saying, do you understand the queerness of the slave body? Which was an interesting challenge that I don't think queer commentary had come up against before. That's what my friend's trying to tell my straight woman friend. Gays have been persecuted and women had a bad life as well. Yeah. Yeah. So this is intersectionality. Intersectionality into comes into play really strongly. Yeah. How, how do these different forms of oppression interact? Yeah. Because in Roman law, it's guaranteed, it's unquestioned, that a master has total sexual access to the body of a slave. All the slaves in the household. Um, at his will. The paterfamilias that Steph brought us into today. And not only that... Um, 
Romans were very big on feasts and hospitality. And part of providing a feast was providing slaves for the enjoyment of your guests. So the slave experience in the ancient world is a queer experience. Right? It's More abuse. Yeah. It's the, um, it's the experience of a survivor of abuse. Um, no, no comeback. No legal, no legal rights. Yeah. Um, black American <coughs> authors were able to speak into that really powerfully in reading these texts. Um, saying, for instance, this is what you'll hear in like a lot of kind of warm, maybe evangelical or traditional Catholic preaching is yeah, there are slaves in the Bible, but don't worry, they had it really nice. <laughs> like you had, some, you had some very privileged slaves. Like if you're a slave in the imperial house, then you're probably wealthier than 90% of the population. You know, you, you may have, you know, you never do any menial work because other slaves do all of that. And some of the greatest philosophers were slaves and, and they thrived and they lived. And black American theologians just have none of that. Absolutely none of that, because they have that black spiritual genius of knowing what slavery means, because it's in their ancestry. Um, and when Matthew Johnson wrote about this in uh, a book of, of essays on Philemon, which is a slave-relevant text, um, he says, no matter how privileged or unprivileged slaves may be, to turn a human being into property is to regard them as a thing. And it's that transformation of a human being into a thing which is the act of violence which is occurring here. Interesting. All starts in it. Yeah. 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 Here's an interesting thing that came out of a lot of this, this black study is they looked into the history of black preaching of Colossians and Ephesians and slave texts in Philemon. Um, And uh, there was a slave poet um, towards the end of slavery whose name was Jupiter Hammond who loved these texts, loved Colossians and Ephesians, loved the pastoral epistles and preached abolition from them. To me, this is... um, I don't don't think I should from my white Aussie perspective, but also I don't think I could think of an answer to this. When Jupiter Hammond used to go to court and say, Paul teaches slaves and masters to respect one another, and I can't do that unless I'm regarded as a human being, who said... This question of living with submission to my master but regarding it as the way to serve Christ and as a source of peace, that's my only chance of having inner flourishing in my life, this text. That, that way that he preaches on that text. Um, because slaves have faith in God. Absolutely. The, the faith of America was was created by slaves and then the masters appropriated it from them. It's it's an incredible history when we start to look into these sources. So these texts, this is the interesting thing about um, 
about what... So Alan Dwight Callahan is the author who, who did a summary of the preaching of Jupiter Hammond and other black preachers who use these texts, said, Paul is living in a context where wives and slaves are never going to be free. If they try to run away, it's execution. So these texts are a strategy of how they can survive given the conditions that they're under. Wouldn't it be manipulating? By, by who? The slave You read the Bible. Your well, pastor will tell you, you read the Bible. Manipulation is a bit underhanded. They, they had access to the whip. So it was more direct than manipulation. Um, I guess um, I'm struggling with the yeah. concept that slaves were queer because yeah. it wasn't about So the reason I think they say that the slave body is is a queer body is because um, queer means outside of gender normativity and sexual normativity. The Roman household was the male dominant, female submissive, and all the slaves, including the men, are regarded as submissive. Property, right? So yeah, property. And so they, they don't have access to sexual agency. And that's outside of gender and sexual norms. It's, I mean, it's really different, you're right. What we think of as queer is, oh, I'm discovering that I'm attracted to these people and I'm discovering that my gender expression is different. And for us, it's, it's our identity. It's something that we discover. Um, but there are... There are people who find themselves through through violence to be in a in a space where they're outside of gender norms. And another example would be eunuchs. They didn't pick that. They didn't choose that for themselves. Who's more? I'm black and queer. I'm double black. I'm double queer. I'm both. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's that's intersectionality, right? When someone is has a, an ethnic identity and that intersects with their sexuality. Um, you know, and I think Pacifica and queer has really specific issues. Um, Sydney has an increasing Chinese population and queerness means something very different in Chinese culture um, because, you know, the, it's not about guilt and doing the wrong thing. It's like, this will not honour your family oh, is, the, no. is what a lot of younger queer Asian people that I talk to are carrying. So all kinds of intersections happen here. Another aspect of slavery was that the master controlled whom the slaves could marry uh, and often prevented them. And that was true in in black America as well. And the the slave populations, most of them were not allowed to be legitimately married. And so they were always secret relationships. Yeah. Didn't Biden pass a law saying blacks and whites can legally marry? Sorry, who? Biden. Biden. That was the 1950s. <laughs> That's oh, a long time ago. Yeah. No, 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 okay. no, no. There's some problem with the law. He cleared okay, it up. Okay. Another. That's a distractor. Yeah. 
There was an old, yeah, some old loophole, yeah. I guess, I mean, I'm sorry to throw this in here, but isn't scripture written, um, to, I, I don't necessarily, I, I don't, I'm not a literalist, I don't yeah. see this as a rule book. Um, and uh, I mean, to me, scripture is written contextually, so it's about, this is a letter to the Ephesians, about stuff that was going on for them at the time. And I just, I often wonder about why we have to uh, take all this out and dissect it all and talk about how does this relate to us? We have, should we do this? Should we do that? Yeah. I just think it's just a story about some people's experience of their relationship with God and what their understanding was. And sure, we can look at that and talk about it and discuss it, but it doesn't mean that we have to walk away going, oh, we better do this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. But, but the thing is, David, you, you have to somehow liberate people from the fear of the text. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I mean, I think that's what you're trying to do, isn't it? Yeah. But, but I'm, I guess what I'm saying is the way that I liberate myself from the fear of the text is I don't actually put, I don't give it yeah. a huge amount of power. Yeah. Um, that's what I do. Yeah. I, so <laughs> I think that, that that's a healthy attitude to have. And that needs to be balanced with an awareness of if we can do that, we have a lot of privilege. Um, and also, there's a lot of history, you know, about about this. And, you know, the history of, um, of the family in our societies, because these texts are the foundation of the ideology of the family that was drawn upon, that created the 1950s suburban home, that created <laughs> environments in which um, spousal abuse and control yeah. happen. Yeah, and so there's a history that we need to we need to engage yeah. with because that's where we come from. Yeah. Yeah. My, my parents were definitely, my father was head of the house, I made to do as she was told. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And there's people suffering under those teachers, like people mm. do take it more literally, and so it does help if you can, if you can show them, oh, actually, this is, you know, like explain what you've already taken on board. Some people need a little bit more help to especially if they're blinded by the power that a literal freedom gives them. Yeah, I, yeah I, I guess the thing for me was I just got to the point where I realised that really with some people it doesn't matter. Like no matter yeah. how many arguments I, you know, will respond to them with and actually realistically are, are decent responses, they'll just come up with another thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but for those Sometimes. who want to change, yeah, giving I mean, them the tools. And there's is actually, the like, people that, who are allies and people who are yeah. interested. There's definitely that. But um, I mean, for for people who, who are in churches that are non-affirming, where the pastor is, I mean, you can go and have a chat with them about this and talk to them about Ephesians and maybe. Yeah. But then there's just oh, well, what about this scripture and this scripture and that scripture? Although, although you know, David, so. I think another thing that is happening today is that in our society where there are assumptions of equality of the genders that pastors are struggling oh. because they they will get a negative reaction they can't please everyone all the time if they, if they present too strongly a picture of, of male domination and it, I, I mean it's very interesting because they're stuck with their interpretation and they, they're looking for ways out I think in part Martin Berber talks about the yeah. intra-divine, this space between male and female, which is intrinsically a part of God's nature. Mm. 
I didn't know he did, but that's, that's nice to know. Yeah. By the way, Cal, um, both in Steph's presentation this morning and what you've said, I feel you're a bit, you're, it's too grim a portrait of the Roman female because the females at, at least high status women yeah. could divorce their husbands. I mean, there was actually, there's a significant freedom of many Roman matrons, yeah. which I felt was not correctly portrayed. Uh, See, the difficulty is that we only hear we only hear speaking, you know, some parts of society. But certainly, Roman society was probably the freest of any society in the ancient world of the of the role of, of women. I would have thought it not perfect. I'm not saying it was equality, yeah. mm. but there were some protections. But I agree, mostly for the senatorial class, the equestrian class. It's an it's an interesting question. So it's um, it's not stated in the letter who the intended audience are, and therefore people there are people who hypothesise a Jewish population. So we know Ephesus is the capital of the Eastern Empire. It's in what we would call Turkey today, um, and but the Eastern Empire. Um, had a very different, unique culture from the Western Empire. It was more Greek-speaking, more kind of mystical, um, and the Latin-speaking, more logical half of the empire. That's also too simplistic, I'm sure. I'm not a historian <laughs> either. Um, but that's, that tends to be the, the trend. Um, and it's very possible that in that mystical Eastern tradition, there were mystery cults around Jewish texts. So... So Judaism would have been seen as an exotic foreign religion, but the Eastern Empire loved exotic foreign religions. So there could be Galatians, Ephesians, there could be Jewish mystery cults that are strongly connected. This is all now hypothesis. There are definitely Gentiles there as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So Carl, you've talked about sort of reading it from a um, liberation theology from a black perspective and from a queer perspective, but like, what would say a two spirit of a Native American perspective, and like taking away that patriarchy that we're stuck with in our Western mind, and actually trying to go back to a more primal, primitive uh, sort of gender or genderless, or how would we then take that through the same process? Um, I don't feel like that's something that I can speculate on myself um, and I think that I mean there's there's so much space for those kinds of readings um, and I don't know if there are indigenous folk here in the room now um, who might have some some input for that um, no no but you would be talking about gender roles I think Probably. yeah I don't think there could ever be one answer to that, those questions. Yeah. But I think this is the thing with, um, with perspective readings of scripture. There's so much work to be done. 
because like there are there are brilliant works being written currently more than ever on indigenous perspectives on theology um, but you go through a lot of biblical studies before you get to Ephesians you know I mean it's not it's not the gospel of Matthew you know it's not the book of Exodus it's it doesn't get as much attention so there's room for you know a Talanoa of Ephesians to be written um, I know recently commentaries from Pacifica perspectives have written a Talanoa of Ruth and Jonah, and I think there was a Talanoa of Mark that I saw. That's just started, you know, but then getting to these later Pauline epistles with the problematic texts, it's, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for that. Do you think that, like, grace just causes so many pastoral issues? Like, grace. just inherently, <laughs> the idea of grace is a nightmare if you're trying to run an organization or, yeah. like, start a move. Because you're creating the capacity for people to be imperfect and outside the lines. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Do you have any proposals as to how we would solve that problem? <laughs> no, I, I don't have any proposals. <laughs> but I think that's like what Paul's kind of wrestling with. Like he's on the other side of grace going, what do we do with yeah. this? That's the interesting thing to me is I think it's really clear, especially once I, I listen to those Black Lives Matters voices talking about the lived experience of slaves, how these texts were a survival manual for them. I'm like, Paul couldn't help the fact that, I mean, Christianity was a religion of slaves and women. That's what people called it. His whole <laughs> congregation belongs to people, and they're like, how do we survive? And he's like, I don't know, I'll write you a letter. I mean, I <laughs> Carl, what have we set up, tried to reconstruct the other side of the argument? Uh-huh. So we imagine that that we could hear the questions or the comments that he's clearly trying to respond to. Mm. Would that be any help? Because I mean, I've seen on the Corinthians some very clever <laughs> attempts to yeah, yeah. to hear the other side of the argument. Yeah, has anybody done that sort of work on Ephesians? Um, like reconstructing the background? Well, particularly imagining that he's speaking to alternative voices. He's, he's responding to another interpretation. I, I don't know exactly in that format. Elizabeth Schussler-Fiorenza. Yeah, yeah, that would be her style. Um, yeah. her, her big volume book, I'm, I, I've blanked on the name. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, Jesus and Feminism, isn't it? Oh. It, that's not the one I'm thinking of. It might be um, saying her name or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. Um, is there problems with scripture? Where can we ex- all encompassing, very general? Yeah. The next minute, spot on for some of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. True. So carry on. Um, yeah. But that, yeah, that book, it, it goes through a reconstruction of the Jesus movement. Um, it talks about the concept of a discipleship of equals. Um, and then it talks about the early Paul and the early Pauline house church. And then there's a chapter in the end which is um, specifically addresses what she called Deuteropauline. So she would say the forgeries are Colossians, Ephesians, Timothy, Timothy, Titus. Um, and those are also the texts which contain texts of terror about women. 
Um, and so she says those are the four dudes. There's a whole section where she completely reconstructs the original situation. Um, and it's, it's brilliant top-level history. Like, it's <laughs> I wouldn't critique the, the, the background that she's constructed. Yeah, I have a question over here. If we're looking at things reconstructively, that is to say, instead of looking at the way the argument is going, we have a look at what, what produced this argument in the first place. Uh-huh. What we might pick up from Paul's letters is he's reactionary. He goes into a place, he sees things, and remember Paul was an ex-soldier and a murderer, he sees things that are not to his liking, mm-hmm. And write some letter which is a reaction to those things. Yeah. Well. So I'm wondering whether, in reconstructing this, we can see pers- um, personified Paul as a reactionary and murderous. Yeah. Well, I, I I respond to that with like, hold on, Paul's not actually in person there. If Paul was in person there, there'd be pastoral conversations. These are someone's come to Paul either with a servant being sent or a messenger with Paul really could you come and if you can't can you send us a letter? Yeah. Um, and then it's kind of more of a like Paul's sort of dictating something potentially, which is yeah, yeah, pretty pretty intense and trying to sort of like go guys, like take this on board. Yeah. But obviously if this is we're not gonna go with Paul being authorship and yada yada um, and we're, we're trying to construct a convenient but, but it might imp- I mean it would be very interesting because it might imply that whoever it is writing this letter is writing to a group of people where slaves do not wish to obey anymore that, that, it, that, that there's a um, movement yeah. that the church has become associated with a movement that's anti-slavery which after all wouldn't be unknown in the ancient world, and possibly doing the same with marriage. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the, the one thing that we do know about the situation is there were attempts at slave uprisings mm. frequently in Rome, mm. and inevitably ended in all of them being killed. Mm. Oh. So, if if the question is, if we're supposing there's a there's a conversation about how the Christians are going to we're going to th- overthrow the slave masters. Then that's that's a suicide mission, and Paul's response is, "That's not going to work. Like, don't do it. Don't try that." Do, do you like the Yoder argument about radical subordinationism? That in the end, this will overthrow. That there's a kind of submission which will destroy the institution. I'm not a I'm not a lover of some of Yoder's yeah, ideas, yeah. and the reason is because I think Elizabeth. Schussler Fiorenza answered that yeah. quite effectively. Yeah. It didn't work. Yeah. If that was his plan, <laughs> please observe the last 2,000 years of history. <laughs> comes back to your point about this is a way to help slaves reconcile the fact that they're stuck in a shitty situation that they can't yeah. escape. Yeah. Right? So it's either learn to live with it or die. Try. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think perhaps... I think be killed for no reason. Yeah. And I, I think for me, like my take home from all of this is, I think it was at the Human Rights Commission discussion that yeah, we were having, yeah. somebody said, we have conversations with these young teenagers and we're trying to figure out whether they are actually unsafe to tell their parents that they're queer mm-hmm. or whether 
they just don't want to have an awkward conversation with their parents. Um, and it sounds exactly the same. You know, <laughs> maybe Ephesians would sound exactly the same if this was actually propping up patriarchal violence and this was a survival strategy. Um, and we're trying to discern: Ah, oh, is this? Are you being a good person, Paul, or are you being a bad person? Like, what's what's going on here? But I want to say to someone who says to me, "It's not safe for me to come out." You can submit to those homophobic norms for the time being until you're safe to get out from under them. And I think that, for me, is how I'm going to read the word submit. I'm not really sure, like I think there's something a little bit wishful thinking about the whole idea that that Roman husbands were just sources <laughs> to which <laughs> their wives could submit to all of their love. I, but I do think the survival strategy reading, for me, um, that's what makes the most sense to me. Um, so you, yeah. you wrote the commentary on Ephesians yeah. in the Queer Bible. So is that where you came down? That's where I came down. Okay. <laughs> and how yeah. many words did you have to do all that in? Well, I mean, I had 5,000 for the whole commentary. Yeah. This is just one chapter. Yeah. <laughs> I, I squeezed it in. <laughs> yeah. And where do you think the Queer Bible Commentary version 2 sits in relationship to version 1? I think it's done some really good work on intersectionality. Um, because I think it's, it's one, it's responded to the queerness of the slave body, that issue that came up, um, and had the chapter on Philemon um, written by someone who, who was very, very well-versed. Philemon got a lot bigger and talked about the slave issues. Yes. Um, <laughs> Philemon, for those of you who know, and some Bibles is only half a page. It doesn't get its own page, but it gets several pages in our commentary. <laughs> um, yeah, and so, like, Ephesians was reworked for that, for that reason. Um, actually, Numbers was a really effective thing. So, um, Margarita Sanchez de Leon wrote the commentary on numbers. Numbers is one great big census, um, and uh, Sanchez de Leon comes from the Caribbean, where censuses are conducted in a politically oppressive way to make some people seem like they don't exist. And I, I mean, I've never really been very interested in numbers until I picked up that chapter. So that's something I can recommend yeah. as well. Okay. Was she saying that the numbers book in the Bible was similar to what they experienced, whether being oppressive and a racist? I don't think she answers the question. She she points out that in the way the census is conducted, ancient censuses tended to count who is eligible for military service. So numbers reports on the number in Israel who could form an army if they wanted to. That means able-bodied adult men. Mm. And from that you extrapolate the population. You know, which is also um, in the Gospels. Sometimes you'll notice mm. Jesus feeds the 5,000. 5,000 able-bodied adult men. Yes. And you extrapolate from that, they're probably twenty or 30,000 then. Um, because it's that, that concept of count people who are eligible to be soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think 
queer Bible commentaries have come of age? No, not yet. Not yet. I think volume two was a great step in the right direction. And currently they're rolling out a full volume commentary of feminist commentaries on every book of the Bible called the Wisdom Bible Commentaries. And they're magnificent. Um, They're very new and I've only read a couple of them. Um, The the whole team is woman-led. Probably 90 to 95% women write the commentaries. And there aren't many full-volume queer commentaries on Mm. books of the Bible. I think Steph had one. Um, A queer reading of... I'm trying to remember what what she... Oh, it was a queer reading of Acts. Okay. um, Focusing on chapter 8 and the eunuch. And so there's... You get occasionally books that are a queer reading of a whole book of the Bible. And are any of these available in Logos or not? (laughs) Probably... (laughs) I doubt it. (laughs) The publishing houses probably wouldn't let that slip through. (laughs) Because that's when it could become influential. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's where it could become affordable. Yes. <laughs> yes. This is great. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad to enjoy. Look, we've got 15 minutes. I was going to bring this to more of a place of closure by having some some group work and having people identify where they stand in all of this. Like, where are you coming from? I don't know if we have time for that. Um, but maybe to, to have more of a getting to the closed space, could people reflect on what, what is your reading of these texts of terror now? Um, but are you more leaning into the radical feminists? And hopefully there'll be different people. Some people will be like, I'm glad we found a way to rescue the text. Some people will say, jettison! <laughs> Out of the canon! <laughs> I think I've- Come on, people, speak. Make some comments. For a long time, I've. Well, I guess I still feel like. Let's go one and two. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, um, 
like I've taught from this before about that Paul was trying to undermine the patriarchal system and that kind of thing. Um, like you, one of the examples you brought up, um, and in the situation that I was doing that in, you know, headship was still practiced in the um, what I would consider an unhelpful way, um, and so that was kind of very relevant in that situation. But I, like listening to you today, I haven't heard about the this is a way to survive interpretation. Yeah. And that, to me, actually makes a hell of a lot of sense in the context of, of what Paul's writing about. Yeah. Um, and I guess both of those things could be interpretations we take into whatever context. Yeah. I think either way, Paul's not talking about men being in charge. Um, yeah. He's not advocating for patriarchy, which is how it's been used. Yeah, absolutely. And abused. Yeah. yeah. Other voices? Well, I, I think just talking about what's canonical and uh, just sort of thinking back to the Apocrypha and the fact that we're talking from a very Western perspective of what is canon versus what is maybe the, um, the books of reference to the East or uh, even the texts that did become part of the Latin church's uh, historic text of reference and canon what what are we saying as far as you know if we do start redacting chapters what becomes our core gospel or core canon as a faith community yeah where where do we stop what's our core plea to moment if we, we, we redact, or do we do we sort of just glue a few pages together so we, we don't have to look at them? <laughs> How much slavery is too much slavery? Oh. At what point do you say, actually, yeah. and we need sh- to confront something yeah. systemic and maybe we need to put our own bodies on the line for the sake of the science? Yeah. And, and when's holiness too holy for us? When is, when is holiness too holy for us? When, when are we afraid of the holy? Oh, fire and brimstone. No, not fire and brimstone, but uh, quaking and trembling and the holiness <laughs> and the awe of the Almighty. Yeah, if you have to give up your iPhone because it's made by slaves, it's a little bit scary. Uh, uh, can we do this question that uh, the previous speaker raised about what is our core belief? I would like to think as Christians, our core belief is what's in the four Gospels because that is essentially you know, the source material for the teachings of Christ found in the four Gospels. Yeah. Yeah, that makes it sense. Mm-hmm. Tricky yeah, because I they're s- also interpreted. Well, that's right. <laughs> Which one takes priority? I see that sure, we as humans, all, everyone, 100%, we fall short, we fail, we, we do things wrong, and um, doesn't matter where I go um, in any church when you come across those scriptures in any church they're teaching on husband and wife and marriage and, and all that stuff now makes me cringe Yeah. and it's like I, I sort of understand the, uh, the 
concept of it, as I say, if it was perfect, if it was as in like Christ um, and, and us as the, the complete body and, and that, but as humans, we just don't, it, there's just so much hurt, there's so much damage, there's, there's, there's always, there's always the power thing. Um, and everything, everywhere, and and I just yeah, um, I've found now um, over the years, you go to a church and um, you love their preaching and everything, and it's great preaching, and then they come to that, and and that and and it's um, yeah, and and all the the mainstream, the Pentecostal, the it, it's all this husband and wife, wife sitting it. Um, yeah. You know, um, yeah. Uh, a we, we, just, we just, we're all, we all fail. A strategy which I would use with, with these texts would be to say, well, all right, that's Paul's guidance for people there. Yes. But since marriage doesn't look anything like this today, I wonder what he would say in the present context, and especially what he would say to gay relationships. Well, yeah. yes. Because I, I, I mean, even the traditional stuff, it, I mean, you couldn't even begin to apply it for, for a queer couple. I mean, it just, it wouldn't. And yet I feel as though there are ethicals, and that's why we've got the sexual ethics seminar going, because actually there are important issues that we need to think through. Yes, well, there's, there's those questions like who's the knife, who's the fork mm. aspect of, you know, <laughs> mm. and, and, and the comment is, well, uh-huh. they're chopsticks. But, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, mutual submission mm. in a context where every party is looking for more power just seems yeah. such a counter narrative that it would have been like, what are you, how does this even fit in our culture? Yeah. Yeah, I think that Rome would have heard submit to one another and said that's impossible, it doesn't work. And it's because the hierarchy is the core of the ideology. And a Christian ethic, I think, is about the common good. If you're working towards a common good, the team, it's just teamwork. Submit to each other just means work as a team. Um, so why did they accept slavery then? The Romans... Why would they you, believed they were again? superior to the people they had right. conquered. So, yeah. It's not complicated. That's <laughs> easy. Yeah, good. Well, how are we doing for time? Right. We are coming very close to time. Um, yeah. In fact, we should probably head towards the yeah. conclusion. Anybody who feels that they haven't been heard wants to say something who hasn't spoken already? Well, Carl, thank you very much for taking us through on a very interesting journey. (laughs) And um, which I think you can see, all of us can see, we could apply to lots of other passages of Scripture as well and And chew on how it it might look. Well, Carl, good to see today. Yeah, so thank you, Carl. Thank you, all of us. And I'm sure that Carl's available if you want to keep on dialoguing about some of these issues. Yeah, I'll be around over dinner. Um, and it actually feels super awkward to pray at the end of this because I can't like 
God help us apply this to our lives. I don't know how to do that. I'm going to pray for, for help in doing a good job of this. So let's pray. Creator Spirit, we invite your presence here into this place. Um, and we honor the fact that you didn't give us a scripture that was easy, but one that forced us to work hard and to learn and to become educated and force us to look at different perspectives and things that challenge us. So we just pray that this work that we're doing on a text of terror would take some of the fear out of it, would help us to negotiate equality in church spaces more effectively uh, and give us more confidence in our rights and our ability to be equal within relationships. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.